the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Pro-life, pro-abortion, what does the Bible say? Well, we'll find out next on Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner. Some want to make it about choice. At the end of the day, it's all about life. From there, it's easy to understand what the Bible has to say. Not so much about choice, but about life. And that's what we're focusing on today out of Psalm 139. Today's broadcast is called Personhood is from Conception According to God. And again, Psalm 139 is where we find ourselves. This is Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner from Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. Join us for a very insightful look into life, who authors it, and who controls it. Here's Pastor Gary Wagner. Abortion is really a part of the crisis of human life because it is far bigger than the murder of children. It includes infanticide, which is the slaughter of babies in hospitals after their birth. Of course, this is illegal, but it happens many times in America with the full knowledge of doctors and nurses and hospital staff. And this is actually a fairly common way of ridding society of those who are less than perfect. It also includes euthanasia, which is a slaughter of the elderly and severely handicapped called mercy killings. Because someone assumes that person would rather be dead than alive. D.J. Kennedy said that the choice to terminate life or to give death with dignity, dignity, is always presented in the most moral of terms. However, it is nothing less than a recommendation of suicide and murder. We have legalized euthanasia in several of our states and are moving toward what some European countries, like Holland, already have, which is required euthanasia. For some people, it has been suggested here for years by our political power grabbers to institute such a policy throughout America so that anyone over 65 would not be a drain on the public resources. Another trend toward the legalization of euthanasia, which millions have already bought into, is living wills. Here is D.J. Kennedy once again from what I consider a very useful book titled The Nation in Shame. Quote, The Christian faith condemns euthanasia, whether compulsory or voluntary. God is the supreme master of life and death, and no human being is allowed to usurp his dominion so as to deliberately put an end to life, either his own or anyone else's, without morally good reasons. The Christian faith recognizes as morally right personal and social self-defense, 
the execution of criminals by the government, and the self-sacrifice of life for others. The Christian church has never approved of the killing of individuals on grounds of private expendency, for instance, putting an end to prolonged suffering or hopeless sickness. There would be greater danger in giving to any physician the power to decide who should live or who should die. Physicians are only human, and mistakes will be made in the diagnosis of patients. Great strides in medicine have been made within the past 50 years, and cures and relief from pains are available today that were non-existent years ago. Not all persons suffering from incurable diseases want to die, and no physician has the right to take the life of a patient which medical service can prolong. The Hippocratic Oath is still taken, and prospective physicians are still dedicated to this oath, which reads in part, to please no one will I prescribe a deadly drug nor give advice that causes death. The basic tenet involved is that no individual, as an individual, has or can be given the moral right to take another's life with or without that individual's consent, end quote. But what we're going to focus on today is not infanticide nor euthanasia, although all of these are related. It is the subject of abortion. Abortion is the intentional destruction of a developing human baby inside the mother's womb to prevent his birth. Abortion on demand was legalized in 1973 by the Supreme Court of the United States in the Roe v. Wade decision. But you may not know what one of those justices said in defense of the legalization of abortion. Supreme Court Judge Blackman said, quote, We need not resolve the difficult decision of when life begins, When those trained in the respective disciplines of medicine, philosophy, and theology are unable to arrive at any consensus, the judiciary at this point of the development of man's knowledge is not in a position to speculate as to the answer. In other words, to simplify it. He says we are not going to get into the subject of when human life begins because we aren't competent enough to decide that. Therefore... We're going to make the murder of unborn babies legal from the time they are conceived until the time they are born. Listen to theologian Harold O.J. Brown's comment on the Supreme Court's decision. Quote, For the Supreme Court to say that there is no consensus as to when life begins is to declare either ignorance or irresponsibility, and might I add, deceit. It is all as if we were to look at a dog and say, I cannot tell what kind of animal it is because one is uncertain whether it is a German shepherd or an Irish setter. It is abundantly evident that the court is acting out of a surprising ignorance or it is merely using a pretext to cloak its intentions to give freedom of abortion. This is particularly obvious. When we think of the logical conclusion one would accept reasonable people to draw when confronted with such a question. 
If abortion might destroy an individual's human life, the logical thing to do certainly would be to give the unborn child the benefit of the doubt. Or at least to seek to protect it whenever possible. But abortion was legalized in America in 1973. And since that time, approximately 1.5 million babies are killed every single year. That is somewhere around 57 human beings, 57 million human beings, having been slaughtered by abortionists in America from 1973 to date. Around 5,000 babies are aborted every single day in the United States. In most major cities, there are more abortions than live births. And this is just in the United States. And all of this is done with the full approval of the federal government, all state governments, and 49% of Americans. And that includes many, many so-called Christians. What makes abortion so evil? Well, the answer should be obvious to us unless it is supposed uh, suppressed in unrighteousness. It is a bloody violation of the sanctity of human life. Now, what is meant by the phrase, the sanctity of human life? Sanctity is a sacred inviolability defined by the Creator Himself. So turn with me, if you will, to Genesis chapter 9. Right after the flood, we see God instituting embryonically civil government with the power of the sword to execute murderers. And to notice why God gave it the power of the sword. It says in Genesis 9 verse 5, and surely I will require your life blood from every beast I will require it and from every man. From every man's brother I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. Now that's what makes abortion so evil in the sight of God. It is not just killing that is an unborn human being but that it is killing an unborn human being that God has made in His own image. So God takes it as personal insult when people who bear His image are murdered. He interprets it as an insult on Himself whenever one human being maliciously takes the life of another human being. It is an assault that is so heinous and so wicked that the only just way for punishing it is by death. Whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. And of course, the old argument against capital punishment is that it doesn't deter crime. But that's not the reason God instituted capital punishment, my friends. Because first of all, it does deter crime. The person who is executed will never commit another crime. But the point of capital punishment is not to deter crime. It is to vindicate God's justice. There are some crimes that are so wicked that the only just way to punish them is by death. And one of those crimes is murder because it is an assault on the image of God in man. And that's why just, just judgment rests upon a nation that allows or condones murder unless that nation truly repents. Listen to this verse in Numbers 35 verse 33. 
In context, it shows how God deals with murder and how he wants a society to deal with murder. Numbers 35, 33 says, So you shall not pollute the land in which you are. The blood pollutes the land and no expiation or no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed on it except by the blood of him who shed it. In other words, if a culture does not practice capital punishment against murderers, God will practice capital punishment against the culture. You can count on it. Because the unjust murder of human being pollutes the land. Let me quote you again from Harold Brown. Our modern world is very concerned about various kinds of pollution. Atmospheric pollution, water pollution, radioactive contamination. And each of these things is serious and represents a portrayal of the stewardship responsibility God has entrusted to us. But there are other kinds of pollution. There is moral pollution, the effects of which pervade our society and of which the Bible speaks. But the most serious form of pollution the Bible speaks of is blood pollution. The shedding of innocent blood pollutes a land and cries out to God for judgment. It is evident that the Bible regards the willful killing of human beings as a sacrilege, an offense against the image of God in man. Where such a crime takes place and is not punished, or at least not confessed with prayer and sacrifice made for it, God will lay the blame. On the entire nation. While his judgment may be sure, beloved, slow it is sure. If a nation permits the slaughter of the innocent, it will surely bring God's judgment upon itself. And for Christians to stand idly by while such killings go on, especially in a democratic society, when they have a voice in civil government, is not tolerance, it is complicity. Germany's Christians did their non-Christian fellow citizens no service by failing to speak out and protect them against Hitler's excesses. And the bombs that rained on Germany in the early 1940s fell on Christians as well as non-Christians. Now, immediately, it would have been difficult, dangerous, and perhaps ineffective to try and protest against Hitler's dictatorship. But would the results have been worse than what actually happened? It is not difficult nor dangerous to protest in America. But the voices of Christians are just now beginning to be raised against the shedding of innocent blood. And we must do all we can to see the voices raised louder and louder and never again lowered to a murmur. Because abortion is so evil in the estimation of God, it pollutes the whole land. And if it is allowed to continue, God will cause more blood to be shed and disasters to occur. Now, what is the case for believing that human life begins at conception? That is what the Supreme Court said it did not have an answer to in 1973. They said, remember, that there has been no arguing about this down through the history of man, which in itself is a statement of ignorance or is it a statement of deceit? 
There has been little disagreement down through the history of mankind, and particularly in the Christian church, as to the beginning of life. We believe here at RHC that the Bible teaches that human life begins at conception, and that unborn little babies are God's image bearers from the very moment that they are conceived. I've heard some Christians say that the Bible says nothing about the subject That there's very little information in the Bible that a person can go to to find out when, according to God's Word, human life begins. That is a statement of sure, sheer ignorance. And so it's my hope to show you today and the rest of our time together the strands of argument that the Bible gives so that there will be no uncertainty in your mind. That the Bible is unequivocally, equivocal in its statement and doctrine. That human life begins at conception. So beloved, why have I interrupted my sermon series on the Lord's Prayer to speak to you on the subject of baby killing? For two reasons. First, because my good friends Walter and Lori Hoy, staunch pro-life advocates, are here today to give us an update on their ministry. And second, their presence with us gives me the opportunity to address what I believe is the most important subject in America today. Now, why do I say that? Because as we are soon going to the polls to cast our vote for new civil government leaders, I want you to understand that we cannot expect God to bless us in any way, especially with godly leaders, until we redeem our blood-drenched land with the closing of every single killing center and the prosecution and God-ordained punishment of death for every baby murderer. If Christians really expect God to bless America with the blood stain of millions of babies on our land, we are fools. But we seem to be more concerned about where our money's being wasted, and illegal immigration, and blowback foreign policy, and terrorism, and gay marriage, than the murder of millions of babies in their mother's womb. As much as we must oppose evil wherever it raises its ugly, ugly head, don't get me wrong. It's my belief that all of these other cultural damaging activities are the direct result of a nation and its churches not doing everything within their power to bring abortion to an end. More about this later. Now I want to give you six strands of biblical argument showing you that God teaches us that life indeed begins at conception. And I do this because I want you to tell these things to your Christians' friends, Christian friends. Because it is our brothers and sisters who are confused about this and who do not understand the serious need to protect the unborn. If they did, the abortion clinics would be closed down today. Abortion mills across this land would be mobbed every day with protesters on their knees pleading with Almighty God to bring it to a halt and begging forgiveness for our lack of indignation. It is my prayer that you will use this sermon today to tell your Christian's friends what God says about the beginning of life. 
And first of all, and I should be able to end with this, I shouldn't even have to go on to the other five. But first of all, the Bible expressly identifies the beginning of human life at conception. Beloved, the Bible just says it. It's not something vague and ambiguous. It is an express statement in the Bible that human life begins at conception. Turn with me to the great book of Job chapter 3. And notice what Job says. I first of all just want to note Job's depression here. I'm not going to talk about it. I just want you to note it. And Job says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, let the day perish on which I was to be born, and the night which said a boy is conceived. Now the word boy in Hebrew is not the general word that's used most often in Scripture for boy or man. It is a more specific and distinct word. It does mean man in many instances in Scripture, but it is the word geber, and the scholarly theological word of the Old Testament defines the word like this. This word specifically relates to a male at the height of his powers. As such, it depicts humanity in its most competent and capable level. In other words... This Hebrew word geber denotes the humanness of man in his exalted position as the crown of creation and as in the image of God. So what is Job saying? Now, remember, he's depressed. He wishes he had never been born. He wishes he had never been conceived. And he says, let the day perish on which I was to be born and let the night perish which said, a man-child is conceived. The night in which my mother and father made love and I was conceived, may it perish. On that night, he said, a man-child was conceived. Beloved, there you have a concise, clear statement that according to the Word of God, we bear God's image and we are fully human as the crown of creation from the moment we are conceived in our mother's womb. So the first strand of argument is the express statement in the Bible that human life begins at conception. Second strand of argument. The Bible identifies a continuity of personhood from conception through adulthood. Turn back to Psalm 139 to see what I'm talking about. There's a section in there where David talks about his own conception and birth. And as I read verses 13 through 16... I want you to notice the first personal pronouns, I, me, and my. And then I want you to try and identify at what stages in David's life he refers to when he uses these pronouns. Verse 13. For thou didst form my inward parts, thou didst weave me in my mother's womb, I will give thanks to thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are thy works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from thee when I was made in the secret and skillfully wrought in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Thine eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in thy book they were all written, the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. Now notice two things about this passage of Scripture. 
It says all life, including prenatal life, is viewed as a gift from God. But notice what David says. Throughout the text, he emphasizes the continuity of his human personhood from his embryonic existence in his mother's womb to his exalt, adult existence at the very moment he was writing this song. And that'll bring us to the end of our time today here on Abounding Grace with our teacher and pastor Gary Wagner from Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. Thank you for joining us today. It's our hope and prayer that we've been able to encourage you in Christ and stimulate your walk in Him. To address questions, comments, prayer requests, or concerns, please call or write to us. We'd love to talk with you. 408-866-5607 is our phone number, 408 408- Eight six six five six zero seven. You're also welcome to visit our website. Drop us an email when you do. Reformedheritage.org. Real simple. Reformedheritage.org. A lot of information there about who we are. We would invite you again to stop by. Reformedheritage.org. Or if you're writing to us, the address is PMB Post Mailbox four zero two, and the address is fourteen eighty four Pollard Road. Los Gatos, California, 95032. That address can be found on our website, reformedheritage.org, or again, simply call 408-866-5607. Copies of today's program are just $5. Mention today's date, and we'll get a CD out to you. And please remember that we are listener-supported which means when you link arms with us financially, we're able to continue the ministry here on this station. It's a great way to study God's Word together, isn't it? And we'd love to continue to do so. Would you prayerfully consider how God might be leading you to partner with us? We'd love to hear from you. Again, won't you call 408-866-5607 or reformedheritage.org. Sunday services, by the way, if you'd like to join us, are 2 in the afternoon. We're located at Lone Hill Church, 5055 Lone Hill Road in Los Gatos. Directions can be found at our website, reformedheritage.org. Again, Sunday services are at 2 p.m. Further information can be found again at reformedheritage.org or by calling 408-866-5607. Thank you for joining us. Until next time, God bless. (music) 